So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark. We will be in chapter 11, verse 27, all the way to chapter 12, verse 12. So Mark chapter 11, verse 27, to chapter 12, verse 12. And so it's been a while since we've been in Mark. And so I'm going to give us an overview, and it will be our runway into this morning's passage. You see, the Gospel of Mark, it is about Jesus. He is the Christ, the Son of God. He is the King who brings God's kingdom. And he's not only a king, he is also a servant. The one of whom Isaiah wrote in the book of Isaiah. He has served in Mark's gospel through healing the sick, casting out demons, feeding the 5,000, and more. And the ultimate way he served is through his substitutionary death on the cross to atone for sin. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And where we left off in Mark, Jesus has triumphantly entered Jerusalem on a donkey. He cursed a barren tree for being fruitless when it should have been fruit. He cleansed the fruitless temple because prayer was replaced with the purchasing of animals. He rebuked the religious leaders. And now there's real beef between them and Jesus. They despise him and they have rejected him and they want to kill him. And in this morning's passage, we will see Jesus illustrate for them the consequences of rejecting him. And so Mark chapter 11, verse 27 to chapter 12, verse 12 If you're able to, please stand in honor of God's word. They came again to Jerusalem. As he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came and asked him, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin? Answer me. They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought that John was truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. And he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some fruit of the vineyard from them. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them. And they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others. Some they beat, and others they killed. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, This is the heir. 
Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. They were looking for a way to arrest him, but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. You may be seated. And so this morning's passage, our big idea for this morning's passage is this. Rejection of Jesus results in judgment from God. Rejection of Jesus results in judgment from God. We have two points where we see first, Jesus being challenged, and second, Jesus being rejected. Jesus being challenged and Jesus being rejected. First, Jesus being challenged. Look at verses 27 and 28. They came again to Jerusalem. As he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came and asked him, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? And so Jesus and his disciples, they return to Jerusalem. And as soon as he enters the temple, not one second afterwards, he is confronted and questioned by the Sanhedrin, this group of religious leaders, this this group of Jewish leaders who dominated Israel's religious life and political life. You see, they hated Jesus and they're beefing with him yet again. Now, this beef started back in chapter 2 when they persistently questioned Jesus based upon his words and his actions. And recently, Jesus rebuked them, and so they began scheming his death. You see, they want Jesus eliminated, and they were looking for a reason to justify it. So they questioned him. This is a public interrogation. And through which, what they did was they challenged Jesus' authority. They asked two questions. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you the authority to do these things? You see, they're asking Jesus, who has authorized your actions? And what rights do you have to do what you have done? You see, I believe that these things refer to Jesus flipping the tables and cleansing the temple. You see, they don't believe in Jesus and believe that he had no right to do what he just did. You see, and so because they didn't believe in him, they did what the church mothers of old would do when they saw us kids doing stuff that they thought we had no business doing. Confronted us with questions. And look how Jesus responded. Verse 31 and 32. Well, 29 and 30, my bad. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was John's baptism from heaven 
or of human origin? Answer me. You see, Jesus, he knew their intentions, and he countered their question with a question of his own. You see, babe, this is where I get it from when I answer a question with a question. You see, this was a common rabbinic practice. And what Jesus did is he turned the tables with his question, declared that his answer to their question was contingent upon their answer to his. You see, though Jesus asked them a question, know that there's a huge difference in motives of the questions. You see, they questioned Jesus to eliminate him. He questioned them to expose them of their rejection of God's will. And so he asked them about John the Baptist's ministry. Was it from God? And that's what it means. That's what he gets at when he says from heaven. It's an honorable way to refer to God. So he's asking, was it from God or was it from man? Now, y'all, this question isn't random. It isn't one from left field. You see, it's either that John the Baptist was, you see, it's either that John the Baptist was a prophet and his message should have been obeyed or he was a fraud and no one should have given him the time of day. You see, John the Baptist was a prophet and prophets were God's spokesmen to the people. They declared God's message and how one responded to the prophet and his message was indicative on how they responded to God himself. You see, John the Baptist, he was the forerunner for Christ. He was the one to prepare the way for the Lord. And this preparation would come through preaching. You see, John's baptism was one of repentance, and his baptism was connected to his message. He preached repentance, that one has sinned against a holy and righteous God, and that judgment is coming, but that you can be forgiven of your sins and saved from wrath. You see, this message was a message of mercy, that God's wrath and fury is coming and that salvation is extended to the repentant. You see, John, he was commissioned by God. So to believe his message means to repent and be baptized. It was to submit oneself to God's will. But to reject his message was to rebel against God himself. So how do they respond? They hear the question, they huddle up, and they discuss it. Look at verse 31 and 32. They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say then, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought that John was truly a prophet. You see, they recognized that how one answers this question has real ramifications. You see, if, it's from, if John's ministry was from God, they would have been rebuked for their unbelief because they've rejected John the Baptist. No repentance and no baptism. They would have been guilty of resisting God's will by rejecting God's prophet. And also they would be acknowledging John's authority, which would result in them acknowledging Jesus' authority. 
Because John pointed to and prepared the way for Jesus. He baptized Jesus. And at Jesus' baptism, the Spirit descended and the Father spoke, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Those very words allude to Psalm chapter 2 and Isaiah chapter 42, signifying that Jesus is God's Son and God's servant. You see, the one who sent John is the same one who sent Jesus. Now, though, John, though God has sent both John and Jesus, let's not think that John is equal to Jesus, because that is far from the truth. You see, Jesus is as greater than John in as far as the Son is greater than the servant. And John knew this. In Mark chapter 1, verse 7, John himself was saying that the one who comes after me is more powerful than I am. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You see, through this one who is to come will bring about the inauguration of the new covenant. You see, John was a prophet, but Jesus is the divine son who eternally existed in perfect love and communion with God the Father and with God the Holy Spirit. He's the beloved son who shared in the Father's glory before the foundation of the world. You see, the authority that Jesus possesses is the authority of God himself because Jesus is the son of God in human flesh. He has the authority to inaugurate God's kingdom, forgive sins, expel demons, calm the raging storms, heal the sick, walk on water, raise the dead, give sight to the blind, curse the tree, cleanse the temple, and save sinners because he is the Lord. His authority is a sovereign authority because he is God. And if John's message should have been obeyed, how much more Jesus's. You see, to say from God would result in rebuke and embarrassment. And to say from man would have resulted in rejection from the crowd and possibly a riot because there was a consensus that John the Baptist was a prophet. You see, to say from man would have caused their approval ratings to plummet. They would have been canceled. And they don't want them problems. You see, they feared man and therefore wanted to please man for personal significance. And they're not trying to put that in jeopardy. They're concerned about their image. So to give an answer to either would be too costly. You know they're concerned about their image. Notice what they weren't concerned about. The truth. You see, they didn't discuss whether or not John's ministry was from God. They only discussed the possible outcomes from either answer. And beloved, how often do we respond similarly when we're asked questions? Because we are more concerned about our approval ratings than the truth of God's word being shared and God being glorified. You see, the difference between us and the Sanhedrin is that we know the truth. But how often are we far more concerned about our image? You see, if people asked, 
if it is sinful or not for one to be a lesbian, gay, a bisexual, or a transgender? How would you respond? If your friends were to ask you about the exclusivity of Christ and that all other religions are false, how would you respond? Would you be concerned about God being glorified through sharing the truth in a manner that's honoring to God and loving to neighbor? Or would you be concerned about your personal reputation? Would you answer the question truthfully and lovingly? Or would you try to evade the question, ducking and dodging it, and hope for damage control that you can still have a good reputation before man? You see, beloved, we should be far more concerned about honoring God and by speaking the truth in love than our personal approval ratings. You see, God has spoken, and we should confidently and charitably share his word. You see, how we respond to such questions actually reveals who we love, God or ourselves. And it reveals whose approval we're after, God's or others. And beloved, where are you prone to be more concerned about your image than God being honored? And why is that? You see, this will be good to discuss with other members over lunch. And it's also be good to pray for each other in this because we are not above it. And so they deliberate, thinking about it. And then what they do? They said, we don't know. See, they evaded the question and penciled C when their answer choices was between A and B. How did Jesus respond? He says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You see, Jesus refused to answer their question because they didn't answer his. And in this section, what we see is that they challenge Jesus' authority because they didn't believe in Jesus. And just as Jesus was challenged, so his churches are challenged in our day. We're challenged on the authority to preach the exclusivity of Christ, on our view that marriage is a covenant union exclusively between one man and one woman. We're challenged that gender is assigned at conception and that it is unchangeable. We're challenged on the fact that we say and know and believe that humans are not inherently good but sinful. We're challenged on biblical justice and the pursuit of restitution. And they say that we shouldn't be concerned about these things. You see, beloved, we're challenged on a number of things. But our authority to speak on such matters and more comes from God. You see, we speak with authority because God has spoken. And his word is the final authority on all matters of life and doctrine. You see, as God's church... We speak what God has spoken and do what God has commanded, even when it's unpopular, and even when we will be met with much resistance. May we be faithful. 
You see, with their challenge, they tried to get Jesus, but it actually resulted in them getting got by Jesus. You see, they were exposed. And Jesus' question was a masterful way to call them out on rejecting God's will as they rejected John the Baptist's ministry. And now he's about to give a parable to illustrate their rejection of God's will and its catastrophic consequences. And so now our second point, Jesus being rejected. Read with me. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others. Some they beat, others they killed. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. See, Jesus, he gives a parable. Now, this parable isn't popular. Nathan Hanley said that it's not in the parable's top ten list. <laughs> you see, this parable is against the Sanhedrin. It's like a sanctified diss track where Jesus comes after them for their rejection of him. And it's also prophetic as he pronounces the consequences of their rejection of the son. He begins talking about a vineyard, which alludes to Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7, which is about how Israel was a vineyard that God planted, and it produced bad fruit and how God was going to judge them. Now, the difference between this parable and Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7, is that in Isaiah 5, the problem was the vineyard, whereas here the problem are the wicked farmers, the Sanhedrin. You see, an owner, he planted a vineyard, set up everything, leased it to the farmers who will work it, and they agreed that a certain percentage of fruit would go to the owner. Look at verse 2. He says, at harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. You see, time has passed. Fruit has been produced. And it's collection time. And so he sends his servant. And look what happened. Verse 3. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Rejection. Defiance. Insubordination. You see, the farmers were unfaithful to their responsibilities. They persecuted the servants, which was an expression of their rejection of the owner. You see, their hatred for the owner resulted in the rejection of the owner. 
And this rejection culminated in the persecution of his servants. You see, they hated the owner and they harmed the servants. You see, hostility towards God is displayed in the persecution of his servants. You see, if one loves God, then they will submit to his will and obey his messengers, not harm them. But if one hates God, they will do the exact opposite. And the primary problem is their hearts. You see, where your affections go, your actions follow. You see, our actions reveal our affections. They're the breadcrumbs that leads us to what or who we love. And beloved, what do your actions say about your affections? Do they say that you love God by humbly receiving his word, by his grace obeying it, and an ongoing repentance when you sin? Or do they say that you don't love God by persistently sinning against him without any sort of repentance? What do your actions reveal about your heart? You see, the farmers, they despised and rejected the owner, persecuted his servants. Now, one may be wondering, on the hill edge of their seat, what will the owner do? Well, let's find out. Look at verse 4 and 5. Again, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others. Some they beat, and others they killed. You see, he responded with mercy. He showed mercy by sending another servant and another servant and another servant and another servant. You see, there's a repetitive cycle of the owner sending servants and the farmers persecuting them. Lo and behold, the mercy of God. You see, the owner represents God and behold his kindness and his patience. He sent servant after servant after servant in hopes of a different outcome. He would have been just to kill the farmers after the first rejection. But he kept on sending more. You see, this is where God differs from us. Because if we were the owner, we would have been ready to throw down after the first rejection. And you know that you would have been ready to throw down. But God is patient. And we who are in Christ, we can attest to the patience of God. You see, before Christ saved us, we persistently rebelled against God. We deserve his righteous wrath, yet he was patient with us, showing mercy and not treating us as our sins deserve. Instead of condemning us, he saved us by his grace. And he is still patient with us. Unfortunately, we still rebel against him. And how does he respond? With mercy, he convicts us of our sins, leading us to repentance and cleanses us and forgives us of our sins. And he is still patient because, beloved, our sanctification is slow. 
We grow into Christ's likeness from one degree of glory to the next. And God hasn't, nor will he ever, throw his hands up and throw in the towel and say, I am done with you. But instead, he will bring his sanctifying work in our lives to completion. God is patient. And his patience and kindness, it is not pointless, but purposeful. It should lead to repentance. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says, Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? You see, his patience, it doesn't give us the license to continue in sin, but to turn from it. It should result in confession and repentance and love for God and obedience to him. You see this parable? It illustrates the truth that God is slow to anger. And though rejected, he responds with mercy, giving the farmers chance after chance after chance. It's what the old, old folks would say, that he's a God of another chance. And we see it here. And look what he does next. Verse 6, he still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he said to them, finally, he sent to him to them, saying, they will respect my son. He sent his beloved son, his boy. You see, the son is greater than the servant's. And he supposed that though the farmers have rejected the servants, they will revere the son. And this is the climax of the parable. What will they do? Look at verse 7 and 8. But those tenant farmers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. No honor, no reverence, only rejection. Which is worse because this is the son. You see, the farmers recognized him and plotted to kill him that they may possess the vineyard. Now, they may have had the assumption that the owner is dead because the son has come. And so if they kill the son, the vineyard will become an ownerless property and they can claim it for themselves. And that's exactly what they did. Took him and killed him. And y'all, Jesus including this, de this detail is bigger than we think because through it, Jesus revealed to them that he knew they wanted to kill him. In his first passion prediction, Mark chapter 8, verse 31, he says that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and rise after three days. Y'all, in this parable, who is Jesus talking to? The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. You see, Jesus wasn't oblivious to their plan. He knew it as if he had a copy of their offensive playbook. You see, what's mind-boggling, also what's mind-boggling about this parable 
is that it's also an overview of Israel's history. You see, Israel was God's covenant people, and they were to be faithful to God, but they weren't. And God was sent prophet after prophet who were referred to as God's servants in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 4, and Zechariah chapter 1, verse 6. You see, they called Israel to repent, yet Israel rejected God by refusing to repent and by persecuting the prophets. And this kept happening. They even rejected the son, the promised messianic king who came to save. You see, this is an overview of Israel's history, and it points forward to what they will do to Jesus. Y'all, this parable, it reminds us of a number of things. The one thing in particular it reminds us of is that faithfulness to God will result in persecution. I'll say that again. Faithfulness to God will result in persecution. You see, the prophets were faithful to God's commissioning and they were persecuted. The son perfectly obeyed and he was crucified. And if they hated our Savior, they will hate and persecute his church. You see, Christ has commissioned us to make disciples. And as we preach the gospel, we will be persecuted. Such actions should grieve us, but they shouldn't surprise us. Jesus tells his followers in Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, being faithful to Christ will inevitably result in resistance, rejection, and persecution. They hate Christ and his commands, and they will hate his church. You see, being persecuted for faithfully following Christ shouldn't be strange to us, but expected by us. You see, beloved, persecution doesn't mean that we're doing something wrong, but that we're doing something right. We're obeying Christ. And because the world hates him, they will persecute us on account of him. It comes with following Jesus. Look at verses 9 and 10. What then will the owner do to the vineyard? He will come and kill the farmers. Well, they will, yeah, what then will the armor do to the vineyard? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. You see, the farmers were wrong in their assumption that the owner was dead. In fact, he himself will come and judge them for their wickedness. Their outright rebellion was displayed through the killing of the son, which resulted in the owner pouring out his wrath on them. In these verses, it encapsulates the main point of the parable, which is that rejection of God results in judgment from God. That is the main point of the parable. 
Rejection of God results in judgment from God. The farmers who represented the Sanhedrin, they have rejected God and his will through the rejection of John the Baptist. And their despicable defiance culminated in wanting to kill God's son. You see, God has sent his son. Jesus came preaching the gospel and commanding repentance, all of which displays God's love and his mercy. Yet they chose to condemn him. To oppose God's son is to oppose God himself. To reject and dishonor the son is to reject and dishonor the father who sent the son. It is to resist God's will. And such defiance merits God's holy and righteous wrath and fury. You see, those who reject God's will, which is to repent and trust in Jesus Christ, they will be held accountable and they will be condemned. You see, those who hate Jesus, who resist him and never repent of such sins, will come into judgment. All non-Christians will experience God's wrath and fury because they have scorned his son. And so if you're not a Christian, I am glad that you are here. I want to strongly urge you to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. Friends, do not persist in your rebellion do not reject Jesus, but trust in him. He is the son who came to save sinners through his death on the cross for sins and his victorious resurrection. He offers forgiveness and salvation for all who trust in him. Don't spurn Christ, but trust him. There's great rewards for those who receive him. And there's great judgment for those who reject him. Friends, do not do the latter, but do the former. Repent and be saved by his grace. If you like, you can talk to any of the members after service. We'd love to talk to you about what it means to receive Christ for salvation. You see, beloved, the Sanhedrin, they rejected the Son. And we must be careful to not look down on them as if we are better than them. Rather, this passage should cause us to marvel at God's mercy towards us in Christ. Because left to ourselves, we would have persistently rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ and scorned the Son like the Sanhedrin. You see, we didn't embrace Jesus Christ because we're smarter than them. Degrees don't mean we're more discerning in regards to spiritual matters. We didn't embrace Jesus Christ because we are better than them. The flesh hasn't improved since the fall. And our hearts were as wicked as theirs. We embraced Christ solely because of the grace of God towards us. God in his love for us poured out this unmerited favor upon us. Because though we were spiritually dead and his enemy, he caused us to be born again. The Spirit opened our eyes to behold the magnificence and truthfulness of the Son. 
God removed our heart of stone and gave us a heart of flesh. He gave us the gift of faith, and we embraced Jesus Christ by faith. You see, beloved, our salvation is solely attributed to God's grace. We deserve wrath, yet by his grace we have been saved. He says, what will the owner do? He would not only come and kill the farmers, he would also give the vineyard to others. You see, I believe the others here is a reference to the church, which consists of Jews and Gentiles, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, who is the true son and true Israel, and those who are in him are the Israel of God. You see, the farmers, they hated God. But by his grace, the church loves God in response to his love for us first. And it's out of love for God that we're obedient to him. Our actions are different from the farmers because our affections are different. God has given us a new heart. He has given us his spirit. And we now love Jesus. And we're compelled by that love for Jesus to live for him in response to him loving us and giving himself up for us. And look how Jesus concluded. He says, haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. You see here, Jesus, he quoted Psalm chapter 118, verses 22 and 23. Which, is in, which was in our scripture reading this morning. And the Sanhedrin, they were familiar with these verses. They've read them, but now they're learning its interpretation. You see, when they were building Solomon's temple, a particular stone was rejected. But that same stone became the chief stone, for the porch and held the walls together. And Jesus applies this verse to himself. He says that it is about him. It speaks of his humiliation and his vindication. He was rejected by the Sanhedrin, condemned to die, but he didn't remain dead. As the old saints sung in the black church, that is not how the story ends. Three days later, he rose again. And through his resurrection, he was vindicated proving to be the Son of God. And he is the cornerstone and is building a new temple in himself. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 22 says that, the, that Jews and Gentiles are united in Christ and that Gentiles are members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. You see, what this verse teaches us is that everything is about Jesus. Life and death hinges upon how one responds to him. You see, to reject Christ results in judgment, but to receive him results in salvation by God's grace and being part of his temple. He saves all who trust in him, old and young, Jew and Gentile, black and white, rich and poor. Whether you have a high school diploma or a PhD, 
all who trust in Jesus Christ are saved. And he is building his temple, which is a beautiful mosaic of people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. And did you see? He says, this came about from the Lord, and it's wonderful in our eyes. You see, all of this happened according to God's providence, his sovereign will. According to what Dr. John Piper would say, his purposeful sovereignty, where he governs all things, every single thing that happens to accomplish his predetermined purposes for his glory. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9 and 10 says that he is God and there is no other, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. You see, God isn't being reactive, but he's accomplishing his very plan. See, this isn't moves and counter moves, as President Snow said in Hunger Games, but it's his wise governance as he fulfills his purpose. Beloved, how amazing is that? How amazing is it to know that God is fulfilling his purpose? The rejection and death of his son was to accomplish his purpose of redemption, the salvation of sinners, reconciliation between God and man, reconciliation with one another in Christ, sharing in the glory of Christ. And in Christ, God is uniting all things in him, You see, this should cause us to marvel at God's providence and trust him all the more. Because if God accomplished his eternal plan of the death of his son for the salvation of sinners, we can know without a shadow of a doubt that he will accomplish his purpose of renewing creation when his son returns and consummates his kingdom just as he promised. And we who have trusted in Christ will reign with him in the new heavens and a new earth, just as he promised. Beloved, read Revelation 21 and 22 and know that he will fulfill these promises. He will accomplish every promise, every purpose that he set. Not one will be thwarted and every last one of them will be fulfilled. You see, through this parable, Jesus declared to them that they are rejecting God and he knows that they will kill him and he promises judgment for their defiance. Now, if they understood this message, you'd think that they would respond with remorse, contrition, humility, repentance. But look how they responded. Verse 12. They were looking for a way to arrest him, but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. You see, they got it, but their response wasn't repentance, but a continued resolve to kill him. And they will suffer the consequences for their sins. You see, rejection of Jesus will inevitably result in condemnation. God promised it. And this isn't the only thing that God promised. He promised that if one receives Christ, 
it will result in salvation. Being delivered from the wrath to come. Glory, honor, part of God's holy temple and reigning with Christ Jesus when he returns. And those of us who have received him, may we hold fast to him. Let's pray.